Today, we're going to look at the Pfizer documents released out of the FOIA request. There's a couple of oddities in there I'd like to cover with you. Come on, let's go take a look. Hello, hello, everybody. Dr. Chris Martinson here. Thank you so much for being here with us, all of us who care about truth, who care about hey, the scientific process, who care about context, who care about being able to have commonsensical thoughts for ourselves. Thank you so much for being here today. It's always a pleasure to have you here on the program with us. All right, so today we're going to be looking at, of course, the Pfizer documents. These were ones that were released through the FOIA Act, and we have some more that came out. Remember, these are the ones that both Pfizer and the FDA said, hey, can we take, you know, 75 years to let those out? You know, because science... I guess, or something like that. Anyway, these documents have come out as a reminder. One of the documents that came out again was called the 60-day uh, post, or is it the 90-day? I think it's the 90-day post-marketing surveillance safety study out of Pfizer. Nothing new in that. I reviewed that last December. You can look at that again there and uh, got it pretty much right at that point in time. So nothing really to update you on that. So take a look at that. That's the one that did report 1,200 plus deaths in that first 90 days. Of course, those may or may not be correlated. People would have to have studied those. Did they? Not as far as I can tell. So here we are looking today at a fresh batch of documents that have come out. There's a couple of oddities in there. I wanted to go over those with you. And so let's go there today. And so we're going to talk about this. This is the Pfizer documents and, of course, the corresponding war on truth. By the way, um... Let's go there. I'll get my drawing tool out because, you know, I like to draw stuff and we'll start here. So this was the study heard around the world, in essence. So this is the uh, original study put in the New England Journal of Medicine, NEJM, came out December 10th, 2020 is when it was published. But of course, it was submitted prior to that. So this is pretty on early on. So this is reviewing the safety and efficacy of the BNT162B2 mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. That's the Pfizer vaccine. The lead author on this, a Fernando P. Polak, MD, uh, out of Argentina. And of course, there's a lot of other people on there. And notice that these aren't listed alphabetically. So the fact that Fernando P. Polak is there in the first author position, which is a prime position in scientific paper world, if you didn't know that, it's kind of, there's a few currencies that scientists trade in and besides ego. But one of them is your position on a paper really tells people a lot in the scientific community about your role on that paper. So this is a prime role right here, first authorship position. So we're going to be talking about Fernando today uh, more extensively. And then the corresponding author is this Judith Absalon, and she works for Pfizer directly. So let's. this is the study. This is the one that, that the FDA reviewed all the data, and this is the study that we're now getting those Pfizer documents out because those are trial documents, the trials that they conducted the efficacy trials with 40 plus thousand people enrolled. This is the paper that resulted that was used for all sorts of things. It was used by OBGYNs to say this is safe for uh, pregnant mothers to take. It was used by uh, college administrators to say we are going to require, mandate this vaccine as a condition of you attending our school, uh, things like that. So it's a very important paper and we want to review that really quickly. Now, Jiki Leaks over on Twitter. I'm big fan of Jiki Leaks. This is Jiki Leaks' fan account because, of course, Jiki gets um, booted off of Twitter pretty routinely. And by the way, you're going to want to 
how do I put this? Let me come back, talk to you directly for a second. You may want to uh, come by peakprosperity.com. Just make sure you know where I am. I will always be posting there. Who knows how much longer I'm going to be allowed to talk out here in public. My subscribers, the people who have joined my site, we have a couple of different membership levels. They're the ones who support everything that I do and that my team does. So I have a, a pretty good-sized team. I pay everybody really good living wages. We have a lot of fun doing what we do. And, you know, we have a lot of expenses around that as well. So what do we do? Well, we're out there every day, literally every day, preparing content, trying to fight this fight as best we can, talking to people, uh, you know, arranging whatever we can do with our gifts and skills to help other people out there and other efforts that are about fundamentally bringing the truth or at least uncovering the BS. I don't always know what the truth is, but I always know BS when I'm smelling it. It's my superpower. And I have a Comcast connection. So between those two things, smelling BS and having a Comcast connection, I'm a very dangerous man to Twitter and other places like that, possibly YouTube. Although it feels like things have softened up a little. We can say a little bit more. But the kinds of things I'm going to tell you today, absolutely no question about it a year ago, is an instant banning. Okay? So now we can actually talk about it. Now, why... Listen, if I'm giving misinformation, fine. I just uh, put out a piece a couple weeks ago, and I talked about the Danish study, which just reviewed this same data, just reviewed as given the RCT data from the pharma companies themselves to conclude that all-cause mortality was not affected by the mRNA vaccines, whereas for the adenovirus vector vaccines, which includes the J&J &J and the AstraZeneca, which they looked at, they didn't have a chance to look at China's adenovirus or Russia's adenovirus uh, vector vaccines. So we don't have that data, but at least those two actually reduced all-cause mortality, which is, of course, what you would want in a pandemic vaccine. You would want it to reduce death. Very simple. Um, so that was a very simple finding, and it's inescapable, and there's no other way to argue it. I got fact-checked by PolitiFact, which said that was false, it reduced COVID deaths, and that's what's important here. It's like, eh, no, PolitiFact, you, 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 you effed up on that one. It's actually not what matters. What matters is all-cause mortality. If you don't have any impact on all-cause mortality, you're not really doing anything, which means really doesn't make sense to mandate these things as a condition of anything, right? So from a risk-benefit standpoint, a complete whiff, PolitiFact you know, whiffed on that, but LinkedIn actually went and yanked that video down and Facebook yanked that video down as misinformation. And all I was doing was relaying to you information that was freely publicly available already from other researchers. And that one was going into the Lancet at any rate. Let's come back here now. Remember peakprosperity.com if you want to make sure you don't lose connection with me, just in case you never know. So let's go back here now. Uh, Jiggy Leak says, um, we're looking now at these clinical trials. And here's how they set up these clinical trials. They said they had to recruit 44,000 people, or they did. They could have recruited more or less, but that's how many they recruited. And of course, you don't do that at just one site. You know, you have to go all over the world and you have to recruit a bunch of different sites. So they had a bunch of different sites. One of those was site 1231, and it was in Argentina. And Site 1231 recruited, recruited 4,501 patients. That was more than 10% of all the patients in the entire trial just at one site. That's exceptional because there are 270 sites. 
One of them was responsible for just over 10%. That's not the most astonishing part. They recruited all these patients in just three weeks. This is astonishing. In the world of clinical trials, that's amazing. In fact, it's so amazing, Jickey noted and and, uh, actually took the data from the released Pfizer documents. So this is the stuff that the FDA and Pfizer said, can we just hold on to this for 75 years? Because it contains gems like this buried in there. And this gem shows the recruitment pattern for site 1231. And here's what I see that's odd about that. It's a straight line. There's no, I can't detect if there are any weekends in there. Uh, Normally weekends aren't a really good recruiting time for all sorts of reasons. It's a very steady line. It doesn't have a lot of wiggles and jiggles in it. Looks very contrived, we should say generously. But at a minimum, this should have raised alarm bells at Pfizer and at the FDA. Somebody should have started asking some questions, at least to be able to answer them and say, here's how this one site managed to achieve this remarkable recruitment profile. This is amazing. That's a really, that's a really amazing profile they've got going on there. All right, Jicky carrying on. And by the way, Jicky does great research. Jicky, whoever you are, Good stuff, buddy. Um, Writes, quote, yet while doing all this, he, the lead investigator in Argentina, who was responsible for that site, uh, managed to find time to presumably single-handedly, because no other authors are listed at that site, recruit 4,500 patients in three weeks with each patient requiring approximately 250 pages of case report forms. Those are CRFs. Uh, That's about 1.125 million pages of CRFs all in three weeks. That's amazing. Who was the lead investigator solely responsible for that site in Argentina that did that? You might be surprised to find that it's Fernando Polak here. Same guy. Pretty interesting finding, right? Let's carry on with this. Now, here's why, let me, here's why it's so astonishing that you could recruit 231 patients every single day that's what 4,500 over three weeks turns into. Uh, in, it, to be able to do that, here's what's, re- here's what's required. So this is, you don't just recruit somebody, somebody walks in the door, oh, you're good, right? They had, to, they had exclusion criteria. There were things they needed to do to make sure, are you appropriate for this trial, right? Are you the right age? You know, are you not too young or too old, right? Um, are you, have you already had COVID? Um, have you already had, you gone to China and had a Sinovac uh, vaccine? There are things, right? Reasons, legit reasons why you would want to screen people. And that screening process takes time. But here was their flow diagram. They said that they had 4,400, 44,820, excuse me, uh, patients were screened. So that's, that's a lot, 44,820. So 1,272 did not undergo randomization. They didn't make it into the trial. They bounced out because they didn't meet the eligibility criteria. They had other reasons. They withdrew something. So then they had a pool left of 43,548 that underwent randomization. Boop, randomization, half go this way, half go that way. All right. 99 dropped out because they weren't vaccinated. Um, and one dropped out, didn't sign the informed consent document. So that's not bad out of 43,000 people. Only one document got dropped in that process. Not bad. Um, uh, 43,448 is the remaining balance. They were injected with either vaccine or placebo. And they say 21,720 were assigned to receive the vaccine. And 21,728 were assigned to receive Placebo. Out of that, 
37,706 received vaccine or placebo and had a median follow-up at two months. So where do, where do those other people go? There's a big missing blob. In case you didn't notice, there's some people missing there. Uh, 43,448 somehow skinny down to 37,000. And we don't have any little box off to the side saying where they went. Um, they're just not there. Um, those 37,706 continuing down over here whoop, breaks into 18,860 received one dose of the vaccine. And the other 18,846 remaining received one dose one of placebo. Under there, 304 didn't make it to dose two. 316 didn't make it to dose two of placebo for all those reasons. Out of that, 18,556 remain down here, and they received dose two of the vaccine, and 18,530 received dose two of placebo. And even then, some dropped out. So what I'm hoping you can see here is that to, to bring people in and randomize them, there was a lot of steps that had to go through just to make sure that they could even undergo randomization. So this is the entire set of steps up here which involves asking people questions, making sure that they filled out all their forms. And by the way, there's like 250 forms each. And all of that happened for 4,501 patients in just three weeks. This is an astonishing recruitment record, um, really is. Maybe quite astonishing, we would say. So, and then Jiki Leaks goes on to note uh, site 4444. But I'm sure all of that that he's just talked about is totally above board until we get to the next totally above board feature of the fastest 44,000 patient study ever in history, which is site 4444. What the F is that? There were 270 clinical recruitment sites for the Pfizer vaccine study numbered consecutively, and they started them like you might start a check register at 1,000. So even though the first check you write might be... 1001. So that's how they started them at 1000 series. So they were numbered consecutively from 1001 to 1270. They're all listed here. And so I'll show you that link in just a second. This is the last page at and there is no site 1271. There is no other site with a number higher than 1270. Here is that last page and you can see that site 1270 had an investigator Nicola Klein here. Uh, this was in California somewhere, and so that is the last site on this whole thing. What's interesting is that here's where this all gets really fascinating. Um, there are a lot of entries in the randomization log, so when the patients are randomized, they're logged. A lot of patients were randomized in site 4444, 1,275 patients to be exact. It's about 3% of the total patients, and you know what? All 1,275 patients were recruited in one week from the 22nd to the 27th of September, 2020. Oop, that's site 4444 there, as compared to site 1231 here. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. What This site recruited really fast. What is this site? Um, kind of an interesting mystery here he's raising. And what's magical, he writes here, about the week of the 22nd of September 2020, well, that just happens to be the last week that recruitment can take place for the data cutoff for the FDA meeting in December. <clears throat> just one problem, though. Well, too early. Quote, the site doesn't exist, and it's totally and utterly fabricated. There is no principal investigator for site 4444 because it doesn't exist. So what happened at site 4444? We don't know... 
Um, but Josh Gutzkow writes, uh, Chris, it turns out the four 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 fours are from the same site, 1231. They did a second round in late September. So that means that almost 6,000 subjects came from the same site, which turns out to be a military hospital in Argentina. So that's a possible explanation. It's a bit of a mystery. But you shouldn't have mysteries like this in data like this, particularly not data that's so critical and important, even to the point of taking away people's basic rights and liberties. You want this data to be mm, crystal clear, just, just as clean as can possibly be. So that's a bit of a mystery that's going on there, don't you think? It's a little odd. So it deserves to be looked into, and uh, I absolutely hope that more people are going to be looking into this. It's just one of the many mysteries that is showing up in these documents. I totally understand why these documents, why people want to keep these documents out of sight for a while. It's, it's embarrassing. Look, I get it. Sometimes when you're doing things quickly, you make a few mistakes, and you don't want anything to contribute to the idea that possibly corners were cut or maybe the results can be questioned you don't want to give ammunition to people who are doubters you know because you feel it's that that important right it's that important to make sure there's no hesitancy out there so we're just gonna take all the warts and just hide them i think that's a bad strategy i think that by hiding warts you actually make the warts bigger and more obvious you know that's what they, that's why they called me old melanoma head if you ever watched that with john candy uh, anyway so by hiding it, they make it worse. So, you know what they say? It's it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Not calling this a crime per se, but I mean, it's it's the idea that the cover-up actually magnifies the thing you're trying to cover up rather than covering it up. That's what I think the unfortunate part here. This is the kind of data that ought to be as transparent and as crystal clear as absolutely possible. And it's crazy making to me that I should be sitting here wondering or worrying, am I going to get censored? for even daring to talk about this with you because there are people out there who believe that you shouldn't question these things or the official ministry of truth hasn't already pre-approved talking about this or it's too early. You know, next week you can talk about this, but not now, not you, right? I decry and deplore all of that because the truth of the matter is this is really important. We should have access to this data. We're, we're, we're adults. We're grownups. We should be able to make our own minds up about this stuff. But that's a little hinky right there. And so uh, I am going to be talking about this more in part two because it actually is hinkier than that. There's stuff I, I absolutely can't say out in public yet, but you want to see what I really think come by part two for this. All right. As if that wasn't weird enough, that's plenty weird. Now I went into the data myself. Uh, this is a document that I pulled out from that big Pfizer document dump that came out. And I found it pretty interesting because I'd been looking for this data for a while and I was wondering because it's not in the paper itself, the New England Journal of Medicine paper. It's not in there to find out like what kind of an antigenic response did people have. Remember, the idea was they put the jab in your arm, you wait a little while, you get a second jab, you wait a little while, and then you have this antibody response. You have this thing called an antibody titer, which is the amount circulating antibodies against the spike protein, hopefully, preferentially against the receptor binding domain of that spike protein, because if you have an antibody binding onto that receptor binding domain, that's how it stops it from doing what it's going to do, which is to bind into the ACE2 receptor or possibly other ones, such as CD147, neuropillin 1, all the other receptors that this crazy from nature virus seems to have come pre, you know, out of the gate with a, a variety of keys to break into the human lock. At any rate, here we go. Uh, they actually had 
assay data, which I said, oh, good. I love data. I love data. Let's take a look at this data together. So this is a series of tables here. And what we're looking at here, this is page one. I've got the link down there. You can go to phmpt.org slash all that other stuff. And it'll bring you to this very document. Uh, pretty long. And so we see here um, the vaccine candidate is this one here, which we're all familiar with. In this particular case here, they're looking at an age group. They've clumped together everybody who's 18 to 55 years of age. Here they're only giving 10 micrograms of the vaccine when normally what they would give as a first and second dose is 30 micrograms. So this is their dose ranging experiment. They're trying to find out what's the right dose here, right? Very important in pharmaceutical research. What's the right dose? Remember, Moderna went with 100 micrograms per dose. Pfizer ended up settling on 30 micrograms per dose. Hey, this is the kind of study where you figure it out. As well, we see here this big, long, crazy string of numbers. First, this is the this right here is the study number. So if you see C4591001, that is the prime study, the set of clinical trials that if you went to any trial site that was conducting these studies for Pfizer, they would have been conducting um, trials on studies C4591001. That's the first set of numbers. Second, we got um, three sets of digits of numbers, 1001, 1001, and then 1004. Okay, that 1004, that's a patient number. Each and 1001 is the site. So 1001 is the site. Remember, they went from 1001 to 1270. And what we're looking at here is the results from a single patient who has been de-identified here for our purposes. But if the people who have access to this could find out the name behind who is 1004. So what did they do here? They gave this person pre-vaccination on the 4th of May in 2020, when they started this whole thing out, um, they then tested a variety of things out here. The NT50, NT90, the S1 binding IgG level. This is what they're looking at. But the thing where I think we're really supposed to care about is the receptor binding domain binding IgG level. These are in units per mil. Um, and a BLQ means it's below the, the detection limit. Um, so BLQ, call that a zero anytime you see the BLQ. So here's how we read this. First, um, they gave the first dose, and then on day seven after dose one, in this case of 10 micrograms, which would have been on the 11th of May because they gave the, the shot or uh, they gave the dose, yep, on May 4th. And they look out here, and guess what? Seven days after dose one, nothing detectable. Nothing detectable. Two BLQs there in the S1 and the RBD binding. Um, by 21 days here, post shot one, hey, we've got some detectable amounts. That's 21 days after. So what do we got? Uh, 143.277. Uh, it's a little specific for me in this case. Um, and then they give shot two, and seven days after that, they get a, a reading of 8,972. And then 14 days after shot two, hey, that's already dropped off back to 3468. And then by a month, which we'd call that day 30, I guess, or 31, depending on what kind of month we're talking about, um, we see that it's gone back further to 2570. So what do we already see from this at the 10 microgram level? And I'll show you the 30 microgram data in just a second. What we see is that there's not a lot detectable in the first shot. It jumps up a lot after the second shot. But that within a month after that second shot, it spikes and starts coming down pretty severely and significantly. We see that same behavior here. 
really nothing available here. We've got a pretty decent reading at day 21. Got a much higher reading at day 7. We've got this huge reading at day 14. And it falls back by a month. And we see that pattern over and over again. So um, this is just to show you how we would identify that again. So site 1001, that data we were just looking at came from site 1001. That was uh, Mark Mulligan's site, who's the uh, clinical investigator um, from New York, New York. So that's how we would identify those numbers up there, site 1001. Um, that's what's in the data. All right. Now let's look at a 30 microgram dose here. Uh, you can see this is the 30 microgram. Again, we're in the 18 to 55 year old group. And so two things we're going to notice. Um, one, look at these numbers. Look at these numbers by the time. So pre-vax, we had a BLQ or a zero. By day seven of shot one, still zero. By day 21, it's managed to creep up to 3,100 in this particular example with 30 micrograms that's higher than we saw before. So we're now we're seeing a dose response because here at 10 micrograms, we were seeing numbers at day 21 of like 143. Uh, there's a 1,326. There's a 1,649. But at 30 micrograms, we're seeing numbers like um, 3,150, 670, a little bit lower on that one, but generally higher. So that's that. But look at dose two, 57,805. However, you'll notice that that, again, by a month, has gone from a reading of 57,000 all the way back to a reading of 18,797. So it's a very high, rapid spike and a peak. And that's happening within just 30 days after the administration of the second dose. So First thing is, um, I'm going to note that rapid drop-off. And the second thing is these highly variable responses. So here's patient 11 in this clinical zone. So that's uh, site 1001. At, still at site 1001. Here's patient 12. Um, so two separate people. This person peaked out at 57,000, dropped back to 18,797. This person only made it to a high of 24,000 and then collapsed all the way back to a reading of 4,872, which is 75% lower. So highly variable responses, 75% lower response in patient 12 versus patient 11. So we're starting to get a sense that, you know, not all immune responses are created equal. Now, if you remember, like I do, back at the time, the headlines and all of the communication around this was to say to suggest as if, Everybody responds equally. Everybody responds well. And this is going to be a, provide very durable, long-lasting protection. As we now know, not true. We should have seen this in the data. That's in the data. It, that was, that's already in the data. Like, this is the stuff that was submitted way back when prior to the EUA, the Emergency Use Authorization Approval. So the FDA had this information right here, and I think it should have been part of full informed consent, it ought to have been part of the communication is to say, we get really good, solid, robust immune responses. Um, and we see pretty rapid drop offs in this, which is going to lead to, you know, what we're going to be monitoring next is how low does that number need to go in order for us to say it's not being protective anymore. Now we don't have that data. They should have collected it. A well-designed trial would have answered that question. Is a reading of 4872, is that a disaster? That, or is that a totally awesome bonus reading because a reading of 18,797 is way off the charts awesome? 
I wish I could tell you. I can't because we don't actually have that data here. But I can tell you we see a very rapid decline in the overall immune response, which really isn't that much of a surprise, to be honest. Here we're seeing the same sort of data exactly for the 65 to 85-year-old group. Begs the question right away if you're paying attention here. The other age range went from 18 to 55. This age range goes from 65 to 85. We're missing 55 to 65. Like, what happened to them? <laughs> They're just missing in this data. Don't have it. Um, the other thing I'm going to note is that the entire data set, and there, listen, there may be other documents out there I don't have access to that haven't been released yet, but if this is the complete access document for the immune response, there are only 12 people in this particular cohort of 65 to 85 in the 30 microgram dose, just 12. So these 12 people, presumably, would have set the baseline for everybody in the world if this was what they were using to assess overall um, effectiveness. So antibodies would have been a proxy for effectiveness. Here's the hypothesis. We give this substance, it causes an antigenic response. The body mounts a response, creates antibodies. These antibodies are then protective of things we don't want to have happen. Sickness, illness, transmission, death, things like that. Okay, so that's the theory, but to connect that theory and make that circle whole bring it all the way around, you would then show the relationship between the amount of circulating antibody and clinical outcome. You would be able to connect those two dots because what's the right number? Is it 30,000? Is it 3,000? Is it 300? Who knows? Uh, don't know that yet, Based on not based on this. Notice here, though, that out of these 12 people, and this is just one page I pulled, right here there is an 89% difference, an 89% drop-off from this person right here, which is um, patient 58 at site 1001 and patient 61 at site 1001. This one at the day 30, a month after the second dose, had still a whopping 30,626 units of IgG circulating around. Next one, patient 61 only had 3,446. That is a huge variability between patients begs a few questions. Is this normal? Is that okay? Is anything happening differently between these two patients based on one had a massive immune response, one had a very muted immune response? Um, we would want to know those sorts of things. Again, we don't have access to any data that would tell us what happened. But what I would care about is what's the clinical outcome of the different uh, between these two patients? I wish that was tracked. I wish we could you know sort of dig through that data and find out did did they have the same exact outcomes? Did one have a much better outcome? We don't, we don't know. Um, is it possible that the person with a high circulating IgG, that their vaccine would have been much more durable, lasted longer, longer protection, compared to the person who had the much lower immune response? Probable. It's a decent hypothesis. But we don't have any data to suggest one way or the other which is the case. Um, so that's kind of an interesting finding. Now, remember, at the time... This is all the way as recent. These are all from like April and June of 2021. So coming up on a year ago, we'd already had um, uh, about six months of post-vaccine experience at this point in time. And we're still writing headlines like these, right? Pfizer coronavirus vaccine protection lasts at least six months. Okay, good. Pfizer and Moderna vaccines may offer years-long protection, scientists say. Uh, that turned out not to be the case, so um, Siladito Ray at Forbes, uh, check different experts next time. Uh, in New York Times, from Apurva, 
uh, writing Pfizer and Moderna vaccines likely to produce long, produce lasting immunity study finds. Um, that was a really tiny study in nature, and it turned out not to have found the right things, I guess, because obviously that didn't happen. But we were still being treated to these sorts of headlines, and the reason why is because this basic data right here wasn't widely shared. In fact, it was out of public view at that point in time. So no fault to the journalists who, who didn't know this or to the other scientists who were sort of scrabbling around in the dark with the rest of us because this data was not freely available, as far as I know. I didn't know how to get my hands on it. Maybe others did. Could be. But you know what else we'd want? We don't just want one month after dose two. We want three months, four months, five months, six months. We want to be able to track the overall progression of these things. Um, that was something that certainly could have been part of this because people were receiving doses of this uh, five, six months prior to the submission of, of this data. So it would have been possible at least, even if it wasn't statistically relevant to have gathered that data to have, data to have given us directional insights into how to respond and promote and uh, deploy this particular set of vaccines, if that was the case. All right, I think it's something we want to do. I just have a lot of questions about all of this. First, how did Site 1231 sign up so many so quickly and so consistently? It's really interesting. Um, and assuming they did it right, how are, how sure can we be that all the records were properly recorded? Because that's it, garbage in, garbage out. You're, it's, you're only as good as the records you, you collect. Were, was everybody in bo onboarded properly? Were people excluded properly? Did we collect all the important information off of them? Eh, I'd like to know the answer to that. Alternatively, how can we even be sure that they're legitimate? Because um, when I see a straight line like that, my first thought is, Somebody better be looking at that good and hard um, because that's a, it's an unusual sort of an output there. All right. Uh, and I, I'd really love to know this. How many of, so there were, there were 168 reported cases of COVID in the placebo group compared to, I think, whatever, it was like eight or something um, over on the placebo side. And that gave the vaccine effectiveness of 95%. That's where that came from. It's a relative rate, right? Eight to 165. But the, my question is, how many of the reported 168 cases of COVID in the placebo group, how many of those came from site 1231? If it was 10%, it was proportional. If it was a lot more than 10%, now I have another reason that I want to dig into that data. So I'd love to know, uh, and I hope some of this data is coming out in the next batch of documents that get released, because uh, these are the sorts of questions we would love to ask and answer, and there shouldn't be any lack of transparency on this. In fact, we should be able to ask and answer and have these answered these questions right away. Um, and I want to know as well, why weren't the rapid drop-offs in antibodies more widely reported on by the FDA at the time? I think that would have been an important communication for people to understand. You know, that wouldn't have been a mystery to me looking at that drop-off data that within a month after the second dose that we were seeing those steep drop-offs, it would have been no mystery to me that we were going to be needing boosters in a relatively short period of time. Remember, caught everybody by surprise, right? Originally, vaccines were going to give us herd immunity. They were going to completely prevent the spread and transmission of the virus. They were going to um, completely prevent people from being in the hospital at all with this. They were going to do a lot of things, none of which turned out to be true. Over time, I think that's all in the data we just looked at, it's there. And I think for people who are competent and qualified, who are on these committees, they should have been looking at this stuff and they should have seen it 
and, and communicated clearly and effectively because then people, doctors, patients, we can all begin to make better decisions and, and use true informed consent rather than just saying, ah, trust us. That doesn't work in this day and age. So those are my questions there. Um, by the way, uh, I'm going to go to part two and, and uh, I'm going to take this analysis even further. And I got to tell you, uh, recording this today, of course, the markets are all falling apart and, you know, uh, bad wipeouts and everything from Bitcoin to silver to stocks to you name it. And, and so I have a whole f- reason I think all of that's happening. Um, and so I'm going to be talking about all of that back at Peak Prosperity with members of my tribe. Again, the reason people subscribe to my site is to gain access to this kind of great information. That's what I give to you. And what you give to me is the ability to keep doing this, uh, which is to bring all of my attention to figuring this stuff out and then relaying it in ways that people can understand, hopefully. And hopefully through that, we reclaim our future. That's my motto of my company. We're creating a future worth inheriting. How do we do that? By educating ourselves and others with and arming us with actionable information that will actually make a difference in our own futures. So that's what we do. Really would love to have you aboard. Got a great community of people. And so you get a ton of things if you come and join up at Peak Prosperity. But most importantly, you help pay it forward and support the work I do so that I can continue to uncover the BS and hopefully navigate a little bit closer to the truth because we need that more than ever. Thank you very much for listening today. Let's hope that this episode stays up on most, if not all, the social media channels. And if not, come by Peak Prosperity. That's where you'll find me. All right. Bye, everyone.